Hello and welcome. My name is Mark. My name is also Mark. And welcome to the Marketing Show. On this episode, we interview Phil Toppy, the founder and managing director of Cubery. Cubery is a tech-driven research and insights agency offering end-to-end expert-led solutions for testing the effectiveness of advertising, new product innovation, and packaging. Phil is a disciplined leader who is disrupting the market research space through automation of the testing process. He is a thoughtful planner and an incredibly passionate NFL fan. If you enjoy the episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for coming on The Marketing Show today. We're really, really excited to have you. Um, while we start, do you mind telling us uh, who you are and what do you do? Yeah, awesome. Um, it's great to join you guys. So um, I'm Phil. Um, I'm uh, the founder and director of a market research agency called Cubery. Um, so having worked in market research for over 10 years now, um, I got to the point um, sort of in my agency career where um, yeah, having worked in a traditional market research agency, um, you know, having sort of loved a lot of the things which I um, was doing, um, there were certain aspects where I guess you get to the point in your career where you've, you've had enough of, of sort of doing certain things and, and they wear on you. And I could also sort of see technology was changing the market research landscape. So um, yeah, about three years ago, I started my own company, um, actually started off as SenseCheck and not Cubery. I can explain that story to you at, at some point as, as well. Um, but yeah, launched the sort of first version of our, um, our app about three years ago now. And, um, and yeah, just sort of been really building momentum ever since that point. Yeah, it's a really cool um, sort of story that uh, we'll, we'll definitely dive more into as we go on about how you started Cubery. But before we do that, uh, we wanted just to throw you a uh, a broader question around marketing, given that you've, you've sort of worked in the industry um, from the research side for a while now. Um, what What is marketing to you? What does it actually mean? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, a very, very interesting question. I mean, I, I guess, you know, from a, a marketing perspective, ultimately what we're trying to do is, um, you know, predispose people towards something. Um, you know, in, in whatever way, shape or, or form that may ultimately be. So um, ultimately influencing attitudes and perceptions and, and associations in, in people's minds and in, in people's hearts that um, ultimately, you know, nudge people in a, in a particular direction and, and make them think and, and feel something uh, which ultimately motivates them to, to make a decision. Um, which is which is hopefully in your favour. Um, and Phil, we know that the famous superhero Batman had to fall down a well in order to become Batman to find his true calling. Do you have a version <laughs> of your marketing origin story? Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really interesting point because um, I, I I don't really have that story. I mean, I'm I don't exactly know why I sort of first entered the marketing industry. Um, I guess, you know, some people at a, at a young age, they have a really clear understanding idea of, of where they want to go in their careers, what they want to do. I wouldn't say that I was that type of person and, and sort of even leaving university with a, a commerce business marketing degree. Um, 
I really sort of didn't have a, a clear idea of what that actually translated to, what that would actually mean for me, um, what, what, what I'd be doing on a, on a day-to-day basis. And, and even from market research perspective, most people with market research just generally, um, just generally fall into it. So, um, you know, I'm a big believer in things all happen for a reason. Um, I've always just been very, very curious about people and understanding people and why they do what they do. And I'm the sort of person who always likes asking a lot of questions and wanting to know more. So, um, I guess that's really what's, um, you know, guided me down the path that I've, I've gone so far in my career. And, and I guess uh, diving deeper into uh, your, your time in consumer research, uh, at a very basic level, if you were to advise someone starting in marketing how to approach a piece of consumer research or asset testing, where would you begin? I guess the, the, I guess the, the first thing is, you know, ensuring that you're clear as to um, what it is that you're wanting to, to get out of, of the research specifically. And, and I guess once you're you know, you're past that point. Um, the, the the key thing that we talk to a lot of clients about is is utilizing research in the right way. So when when it comes to um, you know testing things, whether it be advertising or otherwise, um, a lot of clients utilize the mechanisms that are available as a as sort of a pass or a fail. Um, and you know, because in a lot of organisations, things sort of turn into a quite a big deal and become quite political. Um, the research isn't ultimately utilized for the right purposes. So, you know, from, from my perspective, it's really just being that realistic with the research. All you're simply doing is, you know, introducing the consumer into the conversation. It's, it's not the be all and the end all. Um, but without doing your due, due diligence in that respect, you're not getting a, you know, a completely well-rounded picture of, of the situation in, in order to be able to answer whatever the business question is that um, that you're looking to ultimately answer. Um, I guess the other sort of big challenge um, when it comes to research is that, uh, you know, clients ultimately have lots of options. Um, and, you know, as budgets get squeezed and timelines get compressed and, and that type of thing, um, you know, it means that clients are increasingly moving toward, you know, solutions where they're, they're doing things themselves. And, and I guess, you know, the thing that we're very, very conscious of is, is that when you're utilizing tools and platforms and systems, whether it be you know, a survey monkey or, or something like that, um, without understanding the nuances of research and also understanding, uh, you know, consumer behavior in, in general as well, um, ultimately can lead to, to really, um, dangerous conclusions being made from the research. So ultimately speaking to an expert and um, someone who's, you know, a specialist in, in what they, they ultimately do is, is really, really important. I guess um, building off that, what would you, from your perspective, what would be the key consumer research questions to ask? Um, well, it obviously depends on, on, you know, what the question is that, that you're looking to answer. Um, one of the, uh, you know, one of the challenges that we face on a, you know, day-to-day basis is that, um, you know, clients are wanting sort of really, really specific. So, say for instance, we're testing a, a new product idea. Clients are wanting, you know, really, really specific information from um, consumers about, you know, whether they're going to purchase something and, you know, how often they're going to purchase it and, uh, you know, how many times they're going to purchase it the first time they go to the supermarket and, and, and pick up your particular product. And, 
the reality is that consumers are absolutely hopeless, like literally hopeless at, at predicting what their, their future behavior is, is going to ultimately be. So, um, you know, for us, we're having to constantly, um, you know, educate clients and I guess fight against some of the ingrained ways that the research is, is done and, and just sort of be um, more sort of open-minded to a, a tool, a solution, um, which doesn't, you know, try to, uh, you know, extract information out of people that you realistically can't access, um, but more look, more broadly looks at what are the, you know, the, the drivers of, of, you know, um, you know, driving behavior, but ultimately building brands as, as well. So um, when we speak to clients, whether it's from an advertising perspective, a product perspective, um, a packaging perspective, we talk about needing to captivate, connect and, and compel. Um, and, and that's a sort of framework that, that we use um, to ultimately understand consumer behavior and, and what drives decision making. And um, that's so interesting that you have, I guess, that the, those three C's uh, that you use at Cubery to, I guess, use as predictors for behaviour rather than asking a consumer specifically uh, about their behaviour. As you said, they, they might not actually be very good at predicting their own behaviour. Um, in, in your days before Cubery, though, uh, what were the, I guess, what were the most in-demand types of testing or methodologies that clients would ask for? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess it sort of depends on who you work for, right? Cause you know, from a market research perspective, it's, it's an incredibly broad industry. Um, I've always worked in an agency, agencies who, um, have specialized in brand communications and, and media research. Um, so, you know, understanding things like, you know, what, what drives strong brands, what builds strong brands and brand equity. Um, you know, from a, I guess, from a digital perspective, what sort of contributes to, um, you know, campaign success, um, and also from an, an advertising specific perspective, um, a lot of work in, in protesting as well. Nice one. Are there, um, building off that, Phil, are there any examples of work or clients that you've worked with, um, within your career that stick out as unique or surprising? Uh, yeah, I mean, lots on a day-to-day -day basis. The, you know, the, the thing for me that I really enjoy about my job is, is that, you know, no, no two days are the same. Um, you know, as, as much experience as, as you might build, ultimately, you never know how a particular audience is going to respond to something. Um, we actually, so, so we, you know, what we do is, is we, we, we test things, whether it be advertising products and, and so forth. And um, we actually have an internal system. So every, every, before we test everything, um, the team submits their predictions on how effective um, something is going to be, going to be um, utilizing our overall metric of success, which is the QB rating. And I can tell you that, you know, the last quarter when we sort of handed out the, the prize, I, I was the one who finished last. So the, the key thing, um, the, the, the key thing is that, you know, putting yourself in, in the shoes of the consumers is the hardest thing as a marketer. And, and that's why research is, is so important um, to be able to access those opinions. So if I think about like, um, you know, things that have stuck out in my mind, uh, particularly in recent times, Westpac's a, a big one. Um, so without sort of going into too much detail about my sort of former history with, with Westpac and, and, and sort of what they've done, um, they're a brand which is completely 
sort of done a, a 180 and, and the work that they've produced um, from an advertising perspective over you know, the past two or three years has been absolutely astounding. Um, so the brand who, you know, now uh, has a very, very clear position that they're trying to occupy, um, they're investing much, much more in um, the creative process and building, you know, emotion um, through through their um, through the advertising, um, utilizing storytelling, um, and just generally, you know, acting like a big brand should um, through big famous communications. And you know, that's been a complete contrast to you know, if you went onto YouTube and and saw anything that they've done over the past fifteen or twenty years, they're a brand which. I think has has been a real success story in recent times. Um, if I think to you know sort of broader issues that I see happening a lot in marketing, um, a case study that we did not too long ago was for Budget Direct. Um, Budget Direct's a, a brand who has a lot of established properties. Um, Captain Risky, you've probably seen Captain Risky before. Um, they decided to to sort of dispose of of him about a year ago and, and go in a completely new direction for the brand. And um, it's a worrying trend in the broader marketing industry where, uh, you, you know, leaving all of this latent equity on the table, all of these strong cues and assets that you've developed over, you know, so many years and sort of become intrinsic in, in terms of how sort of people connect them to the brand um, to pursue a, a new direction for, you know, not a, a sort of a really strong purpose or, or reason. Um, so yeah, we can test that a piece for budget direct. And um, certainly that was the way that, that consumers responded to it as well. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting to hear, I guess, sort of the two, two sides of the coin in terms of Westpac, it sounds like is a really positive move um, to, to make that change. And we know that companies like insurance companies and banks, uh, really, really struggle to create emotional connections. So I can totally understand why Westpac would want to push that so hard. But on the flip side, budget have seemed to really walked away from something that had so much value. Do you have, do you have any thoughts or recommendations on how brands can uh, can know what the right time is to to maybe change directions? Yeah. Look, I mean, it's it's an incredibly difficult decision, and and I completely appreciate that with the budget direct example. We're, we're looking from the outside in. So, you know, we, I absolutely don't know everything when it comes to, to ultimately making that decision. But I think more broadly in the industry, what you do see is that with, you know, the tenure of CMOs increasingly um, becoming shorter and, and shorter and, you know, with the need to deliver on a, a short-term basis um, from a reporting perspective, it's it's meaning that, Marketers are feeling as though they need to, you know, make their, you know, make an impact, bring a new agency in, do something different, put their stamp on things, and you know, it's just not the way that strong brands are built. Um, strong brands are built over the long term, um, and they're built importantly through consistency, consistency, you know, across communications, but also, you know, through every single other touch point with the consumer. Um, so I think, you know, the most important thing to do in, you know, whatever the, the situation you're in is, is to understand exactly what role those those different um, assets that you do have actually play, how important they are, 
um, how strong your, your distinctive assets actually are um, before then being able to make an informed decision as to whether or not you start to move away from them and, and whether it's going to ultimately provide the brand with any value in, in the longer term. I mean, if you look at, you know, lots of other brands like I select in that category, um, you know, they're a brand for a period of time who, who moved away from a famous brand asset, a, a comedian and, um, and went in a different direction all of a sudden realized that that was completely the wrong thing for them to do and have started now again in investing, um, in an, an asset for the brand again. So, you know, broadly speaking, I think it's something that we don't see enough of. Um, in advertising. It's such a good point, as you said, those sort of short-term tenures of CMOs, and it really alludes to what you said before as well, of perhaps a political agenda internally that might skew some of the research that you do or, or how you read the results. Uh, on another note, Phil, when you were working uh, on the agency side before you started Hubri, um, when was it that you noticed there was, I guess, a specific type of research that really fired you up or something that you wanted to then take and run with when starting Kubrick? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very good question. Um, look, I guess from a, a research perspective, um, you know, with, with traditional market research, it very, very quickly becomes quite labor intensive and sort of bulked down in, you know, developing questionnaires and sort of going back and forth with the client to revise questions and make additions and so forth. Um, and then I guess, you know, everything else that, that transpires from there around, you know, translating that through to an online script. So, you know, participants can come in and, and complete a survey and, collecting data, analyzing data, translating into reports, updating presentations and, and stuff like that. And I think sort of for me more generally, I'm an extremely pragmatic person. Um, I like doing things in just the most efficient way that I possibly can. And I always just saw it as being something that could be improved upon and, you know, technology could be uh, used to, to make that process just much, much more efficient, particularly as, clients were increasingly wanting things quicker and and ultimately cheaper as as well um for me as well you know advertising and i guess brands more generally has, has been a you know a passion of mine that um as you know only sort of further strengthened over my time in in the agency world and you know when you're in a traditional market research consultancy you're having to do a lot of things outside of that, whether it's more socially based research um, or, you know, whether it's just more ad hoc stuff, which, you know, doesn't really excite you, doesn't really energize you in the same way that, um, you know, talking about brands and um, what makes strong brands generally does. So for me, it was just about combining both of those things together um, to ultimately um, start a, a new business. That's amazing. It's really inspiring to hear um, more about your story, Phil. And, and on that point, was there ever a point in time where you remember a specific day or a moment where you had made the internal decision to start your own business? Or was it something that was more fluid and happened over time? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, look, I, I like to plan. Um, I like to plan a lot um, in order to, to mitigate uh, risk ultimately. Um, so, you know, for me, you've 
got to have a, a very sort of thorough understanding of, of what it is that you're doing, where the market sits, but also what trajectory um, the market is is on as, as well before ultimately making a, a decision to do something like that. Particularly when you're investing in, in software and software development, ultimately it's, it's money down the drain if it doesn't actually work and, and serve a purpose. So you've got to be very, very clear as, as to what you're doing. And, you know, I could sort of see from a, a long way out that technology was just changing so much of, of market research. Um, you're seeing just a lot of technology co- companies come into this space because it was just, it was, it was, it was ripe for opportunity to disrupt it. Um, the way that most traditional market research is done is, is just very backward. It's, it's labor intensive. It costs lots of money and, um, you know, ultimately it can't be really agile and, and sort of delivered to clients in an iterative way, which is super important in, in this environment that we're in where, you know, the rate of production in terms of the amount of content that's being produced has just absolutely exploded. Um, so, so you know, technology is, is important in order to be able to deliver on those things. Um, but where I think the real opportunity in the market is, is, is to combine together the, I guess the expert knowledge that um, and methodologies that you know is being developed in the agents world and, and sort of fusing that together with the technology side of things. And I think uh, you've touched on it already around the the captivate, connect, and compel uh, sort of markers that you use um, to to test assets. Are you able to dive a little bit deeper into why you selected those specific? Uh, areas and and what that sort of helps you uh, understand with your methodology. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the 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 first thing, the really really important thing, is is that we're not trying to disrupt any of the sort of existing knowledge which is out there. Um, so if you think about the market research space, it it is pretty heavily commoditized. If if you go to one research agency or the next. Um, you know, although they might talk about in things in, in sort of certain um, different ways, ultimately they're, they're delivering the same thing. I, I guess what was really, really important for us is, is, is taking the learnings which have been sort of well accepted and, and acknowledged um, from all the work done in, in academia, um, but ultimately, you know, bring that up to date with more of, of the, the recent things which have um, you know, become more embedded within the marketing world. So whether that's, you know, the role of um, how brands grow and, and, you know, distinctiveness versus differentiation and, and the need to build mental availability and, um, you know, brands which are easily recognisable, um, you know, whether it's the, the role of Daniel Kahneman and, um, you know, System One and, and emotion and, you know, how important that is to, ultimately engaging people and, and predisposing them the long term. Um, and I guess, you know, on that topic as well, um, lots of work that's been done by the IPA in, in the UK, um, just around, um, you know, acknowledging that advertising doesn't just serve this purpose to drive in, you know, an uplift in sales in the next four weeks, but it pays the bigger, biggest dividends in, in the longer term. So what we've simply tried to do is build a model which incorporates all of that, um, but also, you know, make it as, as simple as possible for marketers. Um, 
the, the challenges with research is that if it's not easily understood, if it's not something which can be shared across the entire business, right from, you know, the CEO down to your frontline staff, then ultimately its its impact is is diluted. So Captivate Connect Compel is is just designed to be something which everyone can easily understand, easily grasp um, what it all means, and then as a result, you know be in a better position to, to ultimately action the research as a result. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's so important to once you do have the research and insights to be able to communicate it um, really clearly because otherwise, unfortunately, the amazing genius of the insight gets lost. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a really, really cool um, methodology. Um, on that note, Phil, there seems to be a very fine line between distinctiveness and putting an audience offside. Do you have any tips on how a brand can nail a distinctive asset or a distinctive tone of voice without losing their existing audience? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, ultimately, it, it depends on a um, you know on a situation by situation basis. Um, I, I think the the thing that a lot of marketers confuse is is you know ultimately advertising needs to cut through. It needs to get people's attention. It, it needs to stand out. So it's necessary to be bold and to be brave and to, to, to do something different. And, you know, we never say to, to marketers that they shouldn't adopt that strategy because that is, you know, absolutely pivotal. Um, but what's really, really important is, is ensuring that, you know, you're not throwing out everything that you've developed and you've, you know, every single, you know, brand manager over the past 20, 30, you know, 40, 50 years, however long, um, your brand might exist for is as work to develop. Um, you know, if you think about the way that consumers are processing most things, it's in an incredibly low involvement way. Um, so it's just small triggers, small, um, you know, associations and, and, and different elements that you've built up over time, which are going to ultimately trigger connecting those memories back to the brand. Um, so, you know, we absolutely don't say to clients it's not important to you know disrupt and do something that's that's really creative but you know at the same time you know don't throw out everything that you've developed over the years um and you know i completely appreciate that if, if there's a longer term strategy to things um so we tested something for warburton's a, a baked goods manufacturer in the uk um, a little while back and, you know, they've invested in A-list celebrities to uh, to sort of completely transform the way that the brand is seen from being a, a legacy heritage brand into a more, you know, nimble, um, modern, um, contemporary brand. And, you know, in, in, in that particular instance, branding isn't great. It's average. Um, but that's actually not an, uh, not an issue because they've got a longer term view to what they're doing and, and actually in terms of how captivating it is and also in terms of how compelling it is in terms of sort of changing people's attitudes, changing their associations, making them feel more positive, they actually counterbalance um, the fact that the branding isn't strong and, and, and as long as they have a longer term view as to what they're doing and as long as they keep investing in that direction um, and keep carrying it through all of those different touch points with consumers, Ultimately, that's going to strengthen over time, and that'll put them in a you know in a fantastic position five, ten years down the track. Yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting 
uh, I guess, a bit of conundrum because, as you said, uh, if you've got such brand heritage, especially with a really um, old brand, maybe that's been around for 50 to 100 years, you really don't want to uh, go too far from from that that sort of those brand assets that have been built up over time. However, you do want to sort of reinvent it and remain distinctive. So I, I can imagine it's a quite a few headaches for brand managers out there trying to make that call. Uh, Phil, you mentioned yep. before when starting Cubery that there's I guess the research side, but also the tech side to it that enables your business. Are you able to uh, give us an idea of what that tech is and, and what the setup was like to get that integrated? Uh, yeah, so um, we, we work off a technology platform and I guess at the most simple of levels, it's, it's, it's about automating market research. Um, but I, I think automation is sort of, it's sort of become a dirty word um there's you know there's, there's probably deliverables that you've received from automated systems and and ultimately they're less than ideal in in terms of 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 what they deliver so in, in terms of what we're trying to do we're, we're trying to automate market research but but ultimately make it it better um so if if i think about the, the sort of the traditional process for you know, testing a, a piece of content. You're um you're working with an agency. You're briefing them in on your project. Um, they're going away, understanding sort of all of the key questions you're looking to answer. They'll develop a questionnaire. Um, they'll send it through to you. When you get a chance to have a look at it, you'll send feedback. You'll write certain things, and there'll be a bit of back and forth. Once it's eventually finalised, signed off, it'll you know go through the process of of um, you know, executing it into an online survey, collecting respondents' feedback, um, analyzing all of that data, um, you know, interpreting it, aggregating it, translating it through to a report, and it ends up being an extremely, you know, lengthy process, and and ultimately um, costs a client a, a significant sum of of money as as well. So. We're, we're just trying to automate as much as we possibly can, which doesn't add any value to the client. So we simply have a, a platform, an interface, um, where clients can log in. They can um, configure a test across a number of parameters, but within about five minutes, they can have a, a test live and, and up and running. So what that means is that, you know, it can be, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon when a question's popped up in the business, um, you're not quite sure whether something's sort of quite hitting the mark with consumers, you put in for testing, you know, you come back into the office the next day and log into your dashboard, you've got the results there. You can quite clearly see how it's formed, how it benchmarks versus normative databases, how it benchmarks versus um, historical activity that you've undertaken. Um, and from there, ultimately, what we do is, is we prepare reporting. So we, um, we recognize that technology can answer certain questions and it can be sort of really, really helpful to um, solve some of the challenges that clients face. But we also recognize that the people and, and experts in understanding these methodologies are super important um, to the process of, of ultimately making good business decisions as, as well. Um, so, you know, we, we, we deliver reporting in a, in quite a similar way to, to what you'd expect from, from working with a, a traditional company. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And what are the different ways that clients could use QRE to gain different types of insights and conduct research? Um, yeah, so I mean, in terms of what we do, it's an extremely narrow section of, of market research. Um, you know, that's the first thing that I'll say to people when I meet them for the first time and, and talk to them about QRE is, is we're not trying to be everything to everyone. Um, when I worked in a traditional market research consultancy, you know, we never turned down a brief. Um, there was never anything that we said no to. We were experts in everything. And, and even if we weren't, you know, we wing it, we wing it later. Um, we're taking the completely opposite approach. We don't want to be everything to everyone. Um, we simply help clients out with um, a number of, of, of testing solutions. Um, so that's around advertising. It's around product development it's around packaging um and it's unlikely to sort of extend too much broader than that um for the foreseeable future anyway um so yeah i guess from a um a product development or an advertising development perspective it's it's really at any stage that you're at whether it's you know right from that very first moment the agency pitches an idea back to you or you know it might be sort of two years after you've had a campaign and, and you're not sure if it has legs to be rerun again, um, we, we can test it. We can put it in and, and sort of show it to consumers, collect their response, collect their feedback and, and see whether it ultimately is hitting the mark. So, um, yeah, ultimately helping clients throughout the advertising development and product development life cycles. It's, it's refreshing to hear you say that you, you sort of are quite clear on what you focus on and what you do well and, and, and what you don't. I think uh, a lot of clients would sort of love to hear that because they know that when you do take a brief that uh, you're the right, right business for the job. In terms of those three areas you touched on, so there's, there's advertising, product innovation and, and packaging testing. Uh, do you use similar methodologies across those three areas or different methodologies? And, and if so, what are they? Um, yeah, so, so that the methodology we talked about earlier on, Captivate, Connect, Compel, that's something that we use consistently across all of our testing approaches. Um, so while in terms of the actual nuts and bolts which sit behind that, um, from a I guess a questionnaire perspective, while that'll change and that'll be adapted for, for each of those individual solutions. At a at a top line level, we talk consistently to clients and I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, ultimately we're trying to understand what drives consumer behavior and that is the same regardless of, of what, you know, the, the, the testing is that you're actually undertaking. Um, and, you know, once again, it, it just means that it becomes much more simple. Um, you know, market research companies have thrived on making things difficult for clients to understand, um, making them complex, making them really black boxy, you know, um, and, and ultimately just seem complicated. And, and that's what enables them to sort of justify charging significant sums of, of money for what they do. So all we're simply trying to do is, is understand what drives consumer decision making and, and ultimately bring it to life in, in the simplest possible way for clients. I guess um, because you guys are so clear and focused at Cubrin and really understand your, your reasons for using certain methodologies inside and out, are there any methodologies of research that you tend to avoid? It's not so much about methodologies 
to avoid it. It's more just recognizing that, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunities for marketers out there to, um, you know, access questions, you know, for a bit of loose change. Um, you can go onto SurveyMonkey, you can go onto um, different platforms and you can write your own survey, you can put it out there into market and, and you can get answers back really, really quickly. Um, but, but the challenge is that, you know, if I ask enough questions, I can, you know, tell whatever story I want with data. Um, I can, um, you know, choose to show certain data or not show other data. I can massage data in, in whatever way I want, ultimately tell whatever story that I want. So the, the difficulty is that, you know, think, thinking about the ways that you can access data so easily these days, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're making good decisions as, as a result of it. And, and that's why in, in terms of the way that we approach things, we don't actually give clients much opportunity to tweak or, or change or, or adjust things across too many parameters and and some clients you know that's that's you know absolutely works for them because they want to be hands-off they want to leave it to an expert and, and they really um, enjoy that for others they're just so used to being able to tweak and adjust everything um, you know down to the last the last detail um, so what, what we do is, is we standardize everything and it's, it's standardized for a very good reason. We believe in our products. We believe in our solutions. We believe in, in the methodologies that we adopt and they're the most predictive of, of what's actually going to happen in market. But the, the other important reason for why we do it is, as well is because it means that we can collate and, and store your data um, in a completely uniform way. So for us, testing and, and doing research shouldn't just answer questions right now, um, but ultimately it should also um, add value over the longer term as well when you can look holistically at a data set to see what worked, what didn't, um, you know, running broad meta-analysis to um, you know, get a sort of bigger picture understanding of, of what's going on. That's where research becomes incredibly invaluable um, but, you know, when a research report is sitting on someone's computer on their desktop or in a random folder that, you know, someone, you know, no one actually knows where it actually is, it's, it's value gets lost. Um, so, yeah, that, that consistent approach is, is super important. You, you, you never lose anything that any research can actually undertake um, when, when you use our platform for testing. Yeah, I, I love that because we've all had a situation where we, we wished that we had some insight from the past and obviously it's, it's got lost and someone's maybe left the business and their computer got wiped. Uh, I think it's really cool yeah. to come back and compare against previous campaigns or tests and things like that. I also noticed that it must help to be able to compare between uh, different pieces of work that you've done for different clients. And I, one of the things I love about following uh, the Cubery LinkedIn page uh, is that uh, you guys are constantly putting up um, findings uh, on there. Um, how, how integral is that uh, as, uh, as a lead generation for your business? Do you find that many clients are seeing that and, and coming to you through that? Or do you find that clients are coming in through other ways? Yeah, that's no, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, look, I, I, we're big believers in building brands. Um, 
and you know predisposing people in the longer term um you know it's, it's what we talk to clients about and it's ultimately what we believe in as, as well when we're building our brand um you know so i guess you know from a, a, a testing perspective and in terms of doing all of those case studies we um we do it because we we love it we um you know see a big campaign or a big new product launch or you know brand doing something unique and, and different and you know we want to know what actually you know consumers think we might feel a certain way and we might think something's controversial or um you know absolutely groundbreaking but but the way that consumers the average you know person who, who purchases a product actually thinks and feels what it might be completely different so um we're always intrigued as i said you know we have our internal competitions where we test things ourselves and and award a you know a quarterly prize to the person who's um you know got the most predictions right um yeah we're, we're very intrigued um by what actual consumers think and, and feel about things so from um you know a case study perspective it, it it really helps just to you know entrench the methodology so if we're thinking about captivate connect compel that's that's something we talk consistently about in in all of those case studies that we produce so it helps to embed that um you know it helps to position the methodologies in terms of what we offer but also our expertise around them um but but what it also enables us to do is is run learning sessions so you know clients are forever asking us about uh you know other examples and you know gold standard best in class and what that enables us to do is, is to provide that um to show where a brand's done something particularly well or you know whether there's something relevant from a, a category perspective that we've seen um in another country um that could ultimately you know help them through the um you know campaign development process Thinking of uh, of case studies, are there any uh, you said before that like clients ask for what's the gold standard? Is there is there one uh, piece of testing that you've done, that, say on a on a piece of creative that you always look to as being the you know the one that just did extremely well? Uh, yes, I mean it's a really interesting question because um, we we just released a, a case study. Um, I think it was last week. It, it was for Splendor, so I'm not sure if, if you guys are familiar with Splendor, um, but they're a, a sweetener. Um, and I guess the thing for us is that there's this there's this misconception out there that um, you know achieving really strong scores in in testing are a function of budgets. You know, having really big budgets to invest in really creative pieces of communication. Um, you know, enlisting A-list celebrities to capture people's attention and, you know, get them um, sort of focused on on your product message. But it's it's so far from the truth. Um, effectiveness isn't a function of, of how much money that you throw at something, but it's it's more related to the actual, you know, idea behind your communications. And, and Splendor, um, you know, don't have massive budgets, um, production budgets, but what they came up with was an absolutely fantastic um, idea, um, which which played on, I, I guess the the controversial uh, the controversy around marijuana legalization in in the US, um, and and ultimately played on that. They sort of took the product, the brand, and the key messages they're looking to convey, and made that at the heart of the story. Um, central to the the message within the communication and and ultimately it was 
I think from from the testing results, it sat in the top percentile um, of ads within our database. So um, it, for me, it, it just proves that effectiveness, yeah, it's not a function of, of budgets, um, but it's really a function of, of that idea itself and, and how much you involve the message and how much you involve the brand and the product itself um, in when conveying that. Yeah, that's really cool. We'll have to check that one out after and we can include that in the show notes as well for anybody who wants to check out that Splendor uh, creative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Phil, switching gears a bit more towards your uh, entrepreneurial career journey uh, today, which is what I guess we've loved listening to so far. Um, what was it like on the day that you decided to set out on your own and you kind of marked, I guess, your first day at Cubery, so to speak? Um, yeah, well, it was actually SenseCheck. So SenseCheck back in the day. And um, yeah, I mentioned that that earlier. We, we had a name change about a, a year ago. Um, and I guess just as a quick background on that, what, what we found was that with the SenseCheck name, it sort of implied a more transactional way in which we were sort of engaging um, clients, one where um, you know, we, we, we were sort of delivering top line, shallow insights and information and it wasn't really reflective of, of the way that we wanted to interact with clients and, and that sort of drove the, the name change. But I guess, you know, thinking about day one, as, as I said to you before, um, I'm a very, very big planner. Um, you know, I make sure that every single base is, is covered before ultimately deciding to go down a certain path but the thing is with with software development is is you never know um you go see a software developer you give them the most thorough brief you know that they've ever possibly seen in their lives um but it could get halfway through the project and they could turn around and say actually you know you know the scope of this is just so far in um you know so exceeds so far what we thought it would actually be um, when we initially provided you that quote. So, you know, at, at some stage, you've you've just got to put your balls on the line and, and you've got to take a risk and you've got to, you know, be comfortable with the fact that you can't control everything. Um, and, yeah, you know, although it's, you know, incredibly exciting and lots of adrenaline and all of that, um, at the same time, you've, you've got lots of doubts and, you know, you're constantly questioning everything. Um, so really in, in terms of that, that day one, it's, it's, it's just a, a range of very, very mixed emotions. Um, the fortunate thing for me is, is that, you know, I was, uh, you know, I didn't have lots of debts or obligations hanging over my head. Uh, you know, I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have, um, you know, a family and, you know, all of those other really, really important things, which can mean that you can't take a, a risk in your life. So. You know, you get to the point where you're ultimately like, well, if I'm, I'm going to do this, if I'm going to take a chance and, and take a risk. Now's, now's the right time to do it. Yeah, that's, it's super, it's always inspiring to hear those stories of, of people just going for it. Uh, you know, whether, whether you've got, you know, a mortgage or not, I think it's still a huge leap. Did you, did you do it alone or do you have a co-founder? Yes, yeah, so I did it alone. Um, I, um, I, you know, ha having been through the process now and, you know, we're sort of at the three, three and a half year mark, I completely understand why 
um, you know, so many business uh, businesses are, are founded by multiple people. Um, I think that you know, if you're in a position where you have the opportunity to do that, it's 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 a no-brainer. If someone is aligned with your vision, aligned with your values, and um, you know, you're very very clear as to where you're going with it, you know, absolutely go go for it. I guess the thing for me is that. You know, while I explored different options at, at different stages, there was never completely the right person. So, um, yeah, so it's um, it's it's really just been me up until this point in in terms of uh, leading things and um, getting them to where they are now. But but obviously, you know, you you build a, a very very strong network around you at the same time. So you know, you'll have different mentors that you'll use to bounce different ideas off um you know i think being a technology-based business you've you've got to be uh you know very close with your your developers and, and certainly when it came to that um came to that decision of, of deciding which developer to go with um you know for me the the, the one that we ultimately went with was one where you know, you know culture that was just a massive fit um they completely connected with the idea connected with where I wanted to go with things, could could see where um, it could potentially lead in the future. But but ultimately, you know, they they're just a bunch of, you know, good people and, and you know, I guess you know, there's nothing more important than just being around other um, good, decent, like minded people. So, you know, all of that stuff helps to um, helps to sort of balance out the fact that you might not have a, another founder there along with you to, to drive the ultimate business direction. Yeah. And, and now that you're running it, do you, do you have other people that work with you in the team or do you, do you run it by yourself? Yeah. So there's, at the moment, there's, there's five of us in the team. Um, so five of us in, in the core sort of consulting team and, and then there's another three people who we outsource the the software development to, so um, they work in in sprints. So we prepare, you know, um, sort of breaks as, as far as work to be done in in terms of upgrading the software and an application, and and they'll you know execute that on a ongoing basis. But yeah, the, the team has has five consultants in in total now. Um, we've recently made the the app available in the US and the UK in particular. Um, so it's it's a bit of a, um, a, a sort of a, a learning curve in, in terms of how we um, sort of build a business from here and um, looking to have a, a local presence in, in each of those countries to, to build momentum further. Yeah, and, and when you've hired those people that are working in your team, how, how do you make sure you find someone that is is that really good fit and has the I guess the same values or aspirations that that you have within Kubrick? Uh, yeah, good question. So, um, look, I, I mean, in, in my former role, I had a a lot of experience in in terms of um, sort of bringing people through the business, particularly in a in a junior role. Um, I, I love the passion and excitement and enthusiasm um that's that's brought from younger people of of staff um graduates in in particular and and i think that that 
adds a certain vibe, adds a certain culture um, to the team, which, you know, isn't able to be replicated through um, employing people at, at other levels. Um, so that's something that we've um, invested in heavily up until this point. I, I guess the key thing for us is that we're not looking for someone who has, you know, technical experience. I'm not looking for someone who comes in and says that they love market research and they've always wanted to work for a market research company and, you know, it's, it's the only thing that they've ever thought about their entire lives up until this point. We're, we're just looking for people who are culturally a fit. Um, people who are curious, ask questions. They're, you know, people who are willing to acknowledge that they have faults, um, but they just ultimately bring some enthusiasm. Um, they bring ideas to the table. Um, we can work with that. Um, we just need that that energy, and we can shape and mould that. Um, different people have different strengths, different weaknesses, and you know, ultimately building a, a good team is is about taking all of that fusing it together um, and, you know, the, 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 I guess the end outcome being, you know, much greater than a, a sum of its, its parts. Yeah, definitely some amazing core pillars to, to stand behind. Um, within, within your journey so far, Phil, has there ever been a defining moment that sticked out that has made you feel, felt like you've uh, achieved a part of your vision that you set out in your plan? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I think the thing that you realize is that, you know, if you want to doubt yourself, if you want to question where things are going and, you know, if you wanted to, uh, you know, constantly sort of have that hang over your head, doubt as to, to whether things are going to work out, then, you know, you, you can get sort of sucked into that a bit. Um, I'm someone who's, who's learned to completely put that to a side and um, to, you know, just focus on the, the opportunities and you know, the opportunities out there are absolutely plentiful um, in terms of, of the problems that, that we're looking to solve. So, um, you know, I guess once you get a certain level of, of feedback from clients and, and when you start to see with clients then utilize your language when they're sending you briefs that talk about captivating, connecting and, and compelling. Um, you're ultimately realizing that they're understanding things. They're understanding, um, you know, what it is that you're doing and, and the value that you're ultimately providing their businesses. And, and, and all of a sudden it's becoming ingrained. It's becoming an ingrained way in which they talk. And, and when you see those very subtle things, things which, they don't even realize when they're doing it that's really reinforcement that ultimately what you're delivering is is uh, you know something which is providing um them with a lot of value um and you know, all of that's really really important because um you know we, we, we don't just want to be seen as, as someone who you know is able to do things cheaper and faster um, if we try to position ourselves as, as someone who's just cheaper and faster than, you know, there's a billion other companies out there that can do that. Um, we're ultimately trying to make, you know, help clients make better decisions um, as, as a business. And yeah, as I said, when, when they're utilizing the frameworks, the language that you use and replicating that in briefs to you, um, then, then it's becoming clear as, as to the impact that you're having.
Yeah, what about stepping out of Cuberry, Phil? Is there anything uh, outside of your business life that you consider to be to be a, a proud moment or an achievement? <laughs> um, good question. Um, look, I, 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 I'm not the sort of person who um, sits back too much and, and reflects on things and sort of what I've achieved and um, you know, where I've, I've sort of come, I'm, I'm just the sort of person who lives very much day to day. Um, you know, I, I come into work and I enjoy what I do. And, you know, if I think back to what I was doing before I started my own business, it, you know, that, that definitely wasn't the case. I couldn't say that I, I wasn't in a great mental headspace. Um, you know, I wasn't really sort of passionate and enthusiastic and, you know, excited about my journey into work on a, on a Monday morning. So for me, you know, probably the thing that I'm most proud of is, is I'm in a position in my life where I get to sort of dictate what ultimately happens and where I ultimately go from here. Um, uh, you know, ultimately the, 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 the future's in my hands and, um, you know, although as a small business owner, you, you constantly face with adversity, you know, you, you constantly faced with problems that you're looking to solve and, um, you know, fires that you're looking to put out, um, you know, you, you get to the point where actually, you know, you enjoy that, you embrace that, um, you want to, uh, you know, you, you, you want to be, uh, you know, faced with that because that's what energizes you. That's what, that's what excites you. Um, you know, outside of work, I consume myself with probably too much football. Um, so very big uh, fan of the NFL, American football. Um, so Monday mornings, or actually Monday until about mid-afternoon is, is written off for me, um, following what's happening on a, on a Sunday over in the US in terms of the football. Um, I spend too much time thinking about cars and worrying about cars and um, doing different related things, but that's really important because it helps get my mind off things. Um, and yeah, I, I can't start the day without fitness, exercise, go to the gym. All very, very important in terms of maintaining a routine and staying mentally healthy. Yeah, I, I think building off the back of that, that's something that uh, Mark and I are both feel passionate about as well as having that routine and those rituals to help you be at your best. Um, you said you, you start the day with fitness. Um, what does that look like for you? And, and do you have any other uh, any other sort of rituals that you you use to stay at your best? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm just a very um, routine oriented person. I'm um, very very structured in, in terms of the way that I do things. I I need to wake up at the same time every day. So 5.10, my alarm clock goes off. I'm out of bed. I'm walking down to the gym. I'm down at the gym at 5.30, spend about an hour at the gym, um, head to work, which is just around the corner from there, straight after that. Um, so, you know, for, for me, in terms of that sort of process and, um, you know, setting that structure, having that in place, getting that out of the way, first in the day is, is super important it, it it keeps my mind fresh it um means that i guess um you know i'm alert and and ready to sort of take on the day um 
but you know, apart from that, I'm I'm not a sort of superstitious type. I sort of don't have too much else, which I guess is is a part of my routine, which I follow through all the time. Um, I do make sure that you know, in terms of my breakfast, I'm pretty much having the same thing every single day. That's that's very important to me. So making sure that I'm getting my eight wheat bix uh, in the morning to to kick things off is is super important. Yeah, I think that's more than Brett Lee does, actually. Yeah, I think we have to step up our game, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I think Mark and I are probably managing about six at the moment, so um, we've got some work to do to catch up. Yeah, you um, do. Yeah, that's, that's the key ingredient to success. <laughs> yeah. Um, on that note, um, have, have there, has there ever been any other key people, um, either friends or colleagues or mentors, that have helped bring your career or, um, and your business to life, either directly or maybe behind the scenes? Yeah, look, I mean, as I said before, particularly in the absence of, of having a co-founder um, alongside me in the business, it's, it's super important that um, you are, you know, do keep in, in contact and, and close with, with, you know, people who have been particularly important in, in terms of getting you to where you are. So, you know, a lot of those people have, have been former colleagues of, of mine. Um, and and I, and I guess the key thing there is is that you know there's there's certain um, things that they've helped out with in in terms of like you know the technical side of things the actual offer it's, itself and and that's been absolutely invaluable um, but more importantly it's it's the emotional support um, you know it's it's people who see that you're trying to to do things and you're trying to um, you know, fight against, you know, big established companies, companies, you know, who have a massive presence and, you know, have extremely deep pockets. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been extremely subtle things, the subtle support they provide, which keeps you going, keeps you optimistic, keeps you enthusiastic uh, about what you're doing. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of blessed in that I, I, I do have a number of, I guess, trusted advisors in, in that way who have, helped and, and supported me um, up until this point uh, along with you know having you know good family support and um, relationships as, as well it's, it's so important to, to as you said if you don't have that co-founder starting it with you I'm sure there's the ups and downs that you definitely need that support from uh, something else I noticed Phil was uh, uh, at Cubery there must be an opportunity to consistently learn new things which personally I, I find quite exciting uh, you know new case studies to analyze and bits of testing to do is that something that's important to you in your day-to-day -to, -day to keep things exciting uh, yeah yeah absolutely so you know I think one of the things that I, I mentioned a couple of times earlier is, is that you know internally we, we predict how something's going to perform so we call it Cubery's versus consumers. Um, we submit our votes as to what we think a particular product or a piece of creative is, is going to score um, before we actually put it to consumers. And and as I said to you before, you know the the, the last quarter I lost and I I, I lost miserably. Um, you know, so from my perspective, you know, the, in terms of what we're doing, we. Um, you know, we're constantly learning. We're constantly learning about what works and and what doesn't work, and you know where a brand's done something particularly well, and and you know where there's opportunity for further improvement. And 
you know, we, we believe that that's the mindset that the marketers should take. There's, there's no black and white. There's no, you know, set formula to work to, which is going to guarantee you a certain outcome. But by broadening your knowledge, by, you know, understanding different perspectives and different opinions and, you know, hearing different points of view, it can mean that you ultimately get to a much well, more well-rounded picture of, of things to, to ultimately form as a sort of a basis for, for making decisions. Um, so yeah, you know, we're, um, we're never, we, we never stop learning. Um, you know, one, one of the things, one of the challenges that, that we face is that, um, you know, from an agency perspective, they're generally resistant to the the testing process um you know uh as far as sort of putting things to consumers particularly when it comes to creative itself um it's not necessarily something which we always see eye to eye with them on and um you know that's a, a constant constant sort of challenge that, that we face in in terms of um you know a, a addressing that we know that in, in terms of the broader marketing community, whether it be marketers themselves or whether it be agency side people, um, you know, in terms of who they are, in terms of their demographic makeup, in, in terms of their attitudes and perceptions and, and values, um, they're incredibly misaligned with consumers, ultimately the people in, in which they're, they're targeting with their, their products or, or services. And, you know, in this exact same reason for why I struggle sometimes to understand how a particular piece of communication is going to perform amongst a, a certain target audience is the exact same reason why an agency person might not hit the mark when it comes to developing a particular idea, um, which for me is just a constant reinforcement of the need to just bring a consumer into the conversation, um, to give them a seat at the table um, when it comes to, to making decisions. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and when you guys are submitting uh, your votes, do you have a systemized process for that in the office? Is there is there a hat that you'll um, you maybe throw paper, paper names in or a more sophisticated version of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say more sophisticated. Um, no, it's just it's just a a, a channel on Slack oh. um, where yeah, everyone submits yeah, everyone submits their votes. Um, they have to provide a, a rationale behind why they they gave a particular score. Um, and then yeah, there's just a a scoring system which uh, assigns a, a five a score of five if you. Um, predict the exact correct score um, down to a one if you get within, I think, four points of, of the correct score. Um, and then, yeah, we just we just tally that up every quarter or so um, and award a winner. That's awesome. That's really, really fun. That's really cool. Um, Phil, we're, we're on a um, marketing learning journey at the moment um, through our podcast, and, and we've already learned so much from you today. Um, do you have any tips uh, or recommendations, as crazy as they might be, as to how we might be able to market our podcast? Look at the sponsoring look, things like blimps. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's it, it's funny you say that because you know ultimately you know we're we're, we're a small business as, as well. We're you know 
in the exact same position that you are where, you know, we've got a great idea and we want to take it to the world and we're trying to, to figure out how to do that. And, you know, I guess in terms of the approach that we take, we just give anything a chance. Um, we're prepared to take a chance with absolutely um, anything to see whether or not it, it'll, um, it'll result in, you know, positive outcomes. I guess the the key is for us, um, like I talked to you about earlier on, is is that we just see it as a, a much more longer term play. Um, you know, one of one of the big challenges facing marketers is is that you know digital um, engagement metrics enable you to get a an understanding of of what's happening on a on a short term short term basis, um, likes and shares and follows and and stuff like that. But you know that they're not necessarily reflective of of um, what you know your activities are doing to drive longer term predisposition um, so you know for us it's, it's just about creating mental availability how, how do we um, you know different do different things and engage people in different ways to just stay mentally available and you know you touched on the case studies earlier on and you know they're a fantastic way to you know keep us top of mind um, when it comes to decisions that the clients are making around testing different things um, but also help to you know reinforce the, the desired associations that, that we're looking to convey so while I um, I can't uh, sort of elaborate too much further in terms of specific advice for you um, in terms of the podcast what I can say is is that um, you know, thinking sort of more longer term in terms of, of what you're doing and not necessarily getting too focused on um, some of the, the shorter term metrics and outcomes um, is, is obviously super important. Yeah, no, it's uh, noted. I think if we ever have some assets that we want to test for for those metrics. To yes, definitely. We'll be in touch. <laughs> and, and now knowing that you're willing to try anything, we'll save you half of our blimp for advertising when we get one. Yeah, no, no, absolutely keen to uh, keen to discuss potential opportunities to collaborate. <laughs> um, look, Phil, uh, we we've really enjoyed hearing about your your career journey starting Cubery and also um, specifically about you know testing methodologies that you guys use. Um, but one of the things that Mark and I uh, are very aware of is that as marketers, we need to so sometimes step out of out of our day jobs and out of our businesses and and look around and see what's happening in the world and so we have a segment called what's interesting this week uh so bill what have you found interesting this week <laughs> yeah no it's it's a a very very good question um uh, as i sort of touched on earlier um i'm absolutely obsessed with football the nfl in particular and um you know a lot of the ways that i approach making business decisions i i base on um football strategies and you know team sports and you know i think there's a, a lot of similarities in, in terms of, of the way that you operate a business versus the way that you operate a sports team but i guess you know more broadly in terms of interesting things that i've i've noted this week this week is that um um, the NFL is, is just absolutely riddled with um, rules that, you know, nobody really knows about. There's, there's just so many rules that no one can really stay on top of all of them. And it was interesting that actually just this week, um, two teams played in London. 
So the, the NFL plays a number of exhibition matches in, in London. It was the uh, the Carolina Panthers versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And um, there was a, yeah, there was a, a new rule, um, which I had never heard of before, um, which, which basically played out. So I'm not sure if either of you guys are, are familiar with NFL, but um, basically what happens on, on a fourth down is, is a team will generally punt the ball. So they'll essentially kick it as, as far as they possibly can to, to get it away from their end zone. Um, and the team on the opposing end takes a, a fair catch generally. So it'll be an opportunity for them to just catch the ball and, and to set up um, things again and, and to go from there. But, but, but what the Carolina Panthers actually did um, was they um, not only took a, a fair catch, um, but they also decided to attempt a, um, a, a field goal from that, that fair catch. And it's, it's something that I'd never seen before. Um, it was basically something that, that only happens in certain situations. Um, and it so happened to be at the end of, of the first half of the football game. Um, and yeah, they, they attempt, attempted a, a field goal, but it's, it's, it's sort of a field goal. It's not really a field goal. It's more like a, a kickoff. And um, yeah, it blew my mind. So that was, um, that, that was, that was my um, interesting observation of, of what's been happening uh, in the broader world outside of marketing for the week. Yeah, nice one. That's awesome. Hopefully, hopefully well, you understood some of that. No, that sounds awesome. It was a very good explanation yeah. for someone who doesn't follow NFL. I think I understood it. And, and on yeah. the, it seems like such a like, tactical and interesting sport to follow. Do you have any tips um, for someone, <coughs> I'm asking as a, for a friend, um, that would like to learn how to follow NFL but wouldn't know where to start? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I really enjoy... NFL because of the strategy and, and the structure behind it. I, I love the fact that, you know, it's a, it's a set play every single time the ball is snapped and, you know, in terms of what could potentially transpire, the, the outcomes are limitless. You know, the most amazing thing could happen, um, you know, every single time the, the, the quarterback is, is past the ball. So um, in, in terms of understanding, the, the reality is that unless you grew up with it and unless you you know were born in in the US and you grew up playing it you know you, you're never going to know absolutely everything and it's really just a matter of of seeing and being exposed to as, as much as you possibly can um, to to ultimately further your understanding of it and you know like I said to you before um, it hopefully means that a lot of your your work week can become consumed by it. Sounds awesome. What about you, Mark? What did you find interesting this week? Well, um, I, it's another podcast um, that I found interesting this week. It's a new one I discovered. And to be honest, I'm, I'm just upset that we didn't discover it uh, or come up with the idea ourselves because mm. I think it solves a really cool problem. Uh, it's a new podcast from Ariana Huffington's Thrive Network, and it's called Meditative Story. And what they've done is they've started a podcast where they create or uh, they get people to recite really interesting stories from their lives that's really, really well produced and really well put together. And they blend these in-depth stories with a guided meditation. So it's this really, really cool concept um, where people recount these amazing stories and it just seamlessly bleeds through while you're kind of in already in a pretty mindful zone listening to a podcast, 
to just naturally go into this really cool uh, guided meditation. And I just think it's a really cool concept. And, and some of the stories are, are really, really fascinating and really captivating and, and well-written. Mm. Um, and it's a, almost a really cool way to explore the podcasting and also audio medium. It's kind of cool to see the synergy between, I guess, the growth of mindfulness and meditation apps, but also the growth of podcasting and audio content and seeing what happens when you put mm. both of them together. So um, I think if you get a chance, um, both of you this week mm. or this weekend, to have a bit of time to put headphones on and listen to a story for 20 minutes, um, definitely give it a go. It's, it's almost like an amazing version of an adult bedtime story. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's really cool. I definitely want to check that one out. Well, um, for, for what I found interesting this week, I actually uh, I found a, a new fitness uh, option, which is a spin class I found called Body and Ride. Um, these guys are based in Melbourne, and it's, and it's like a cross between a, a nightclub uh, and, and a spin class. So it's, it's, uh, you go in, uh, you book your class, you go in, and you go into the ride chamber. And it's all dark and, and your instructor is essentially this person who obviously is doing the workout and telling you what to do and when to put your resistance up and et cetera. But then they're also like a, a DJ and a lights person as well. So during like peak moments of the workout, they turn the music up, change the track, mix the track, and also then maybe put some strobe lights on. <laughs> uh, it's pretty intense. It's very different to what I usually do, but... It was really cool. I, I, I cycled to work every day. So I, I thought I'd be like, yeah, sweet. Yeah. This will be easy. I'll do, do the beginner's class. It was so intense. I couldn't believe how quickly <laughs> I was sweating. It was amazing. That's so um, good. But, but I did a bit of research into it because it was a really cool concept. It even had like upper body workout yeah. part of it. So they had weights that you would lift off the bike and, and do stuff with your arms as well. Um, and and it, was, it was started by uh, a woman named Michaela Fellner who was working uh, in the marketing space as an innovation manager. And in 2016, she decided that she wasn't satisfied with the spin class options that were available around her. So she just went and rented a space and started this really cool sort of concept spin class. So yeah, really exciting. If, yeah. if anyone's ever around body and ride, give it a check out. Yeah, nice one. Very good. That's awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show again, Phil. It's been awesome to have you be a part of our learning journey. We really appreciate you taking the time. No drama. It's uh, been absolutely fantastic joining you guys. And um, I uh, yeah, wish you both um, success in, in terms of your podcasting journey. It's, it's a, a great, uh, great idea. And um, yeah, I look forward to following future episodes. Thank you. Thanks, Phil.